Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Uh, good evening, everybody. Welcome tonight to uh, Marine Conversations uh, with the uh, Commonwealth Club. I'm Bruce Robbie. I'm the CEO of Relevant Wealth Advisors here in Marin County. I'm also on the Board of Governors of the Commonwealth Club, and I'm very excited to have this uh, talk tonight. Uh, for the past several years, my company, Relevant Wealth, has been a supporter of the club, and particularly these Marin County events. I also want to welcome the Marin Community Foundation, who's rejoined us as a sponsor. They sponsored this event in the past. Their sponsorship's allowing us to record these events now. They'll be podcasted, commonwealthclub.org. I want to introduce uh, Wendy Norris. She's the owner of Gallery Wendy Norris in San Francisco. Wendy's built an internationally renowned arts program that champions important modern and contemporary art. She's also curated over 150 exhibits around the world. Welcome, Wendy. Sharon Maidenberg is the executive director of the Headlands Center of the Arts, located at Fort Berry right here in the Marin Headlands. Uh, that's an amazing kind of secret gem. If you're interested in art, you've got to go out to the Headlands and check out this facility. It was an old, old Army barracks building, I think. And uh, they have a 2019 Artists in Residence program. They've got 59 artists coming out there from, I think, 4 to 10 weeks at a time from 17 countries. Right out there in the Headlands with the, uh, the seals and, and uh, out by Rodeo Beach, really, yeah. So you go surfing at the same time. Uh, thank you for joining us. And Headlands, they are a nonprofit. Uh, headlands.org if you want to support art out in the Headlands. Okay, lastly, not last, but last on my list, Natasha Bose. She's an art scholar, curator, writer, and critic, written for several publications, including Dwell Magazine, Huffington Post. Most interestingly, though, she authored a book, about the Facebook Artists in Residence program. Really cool stuff. Facebook, I had no idea. They, they paid for over 225 amazing site-specific art exhibits. There's an amazing book they have that she authored all about blending art and technology. Super cool. So we're really excited to have Natasha here. And she's going to kick us off tonight. Thank you all for coming. Thank you so much, and it's such an honor to be speaking under the umbrella of the Commonwealth Club with these fabulous new banners that we would like everyone to acknowledge. They're up for the first time. And also, thank you to Adam Hirschfelder for inviting us and putting this together, and to Timothy Dawn, who has curated this panel of badass women in the arts. I think maybe you have done this for Women's Month, but not really, right? Okay. <laughs> so... Um, I was really excited tonight because I got to walk here. I live a block away, <laughs> and usually I'm either driving to Berkeley or San Francisco or flying to work, so it was pretty much of a treat, so I'd like to just thank my community. My neighbors are out here. A bunch of us from the neighborhood are here, so thank you all and many Mill Valley f friendly faces. So... Um, I, um, I wanted to just start with a little context before we hear from our other panelists. Um, there is, this is part of a larger series that the Commonwealth Club has dedicated to this, the, the ideas around, it's a, called a series on health. And other categories in the series are political health, so issues of democracy, economic health and trade, social and urban health, <clears throat> issues of homelessness, violence, and climate health, the Anthropocene era. So today we're speaking about cultural health, and this is a very large topic and a bit daunting, although I know we all can address it, and we will, and we look forward to, to the Q&A with you. Um, the first thing that struck me when I was thinking about talking about cultural health was the word commonwealth, actually. And so I wanted to parse that out. I'm also a professor at Berkeley in the art and design program and at CCA, so I can be a bit of a professor. So here goes. One of my students is here. Maggie. Hi. Here we go. Ready? Commonwealth. Um, it's a traditional English term for a political community founded on the common good. And historically, uh, it has sometimes been synonymous with republic, the noun commonwealth, meaning public welfare, general good, 
or advantage. And this dates back to the 15th century. So originally a phrase, the commonwealth or the common wheel, and I don't know if Mimi's here who started Commonweal and Bolinas, but echoed in the, is, is echoed in the, the modern synonym public wheel. It comes from the old meaning of wealth, which is well-being. It's ultimately about well-being, which of course I'm thinking about health. And is itself a loose translation of the Latin, you don't need to know about this, but it's res publica. <laughs> but common well-being, this was really much of the 17th century ideal. So in thinking about this cultural health, these, uh, this report from the aesthetic field that we've been asked to address tonight, um, we are going to speak from our different positions. We've also overlapped a lot. I, I've worked with both Wendy and Sharon in different capacities with artists and with institutionally we've we've both worked for Yerba Buena Center for the Arts and from for New Langton Arts and we've worked together with artists and I'm currently curating an artist um, who was a resident <laughs> Brad Kalhammer I'm doing a show of Brad's who you just met in the desert so from that vantage point um, I wanted to ask each of you in your different roles. Um, have, you've taken the pulse of the patient. In this case, the patient is the Bay Area, first and foremost. And um, how is its health and how is it doing? <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, I think if I'm looking at the arts uh, cultural system here as an ecosystem here in the Bay Area, I think there's some fantastic healthful bits of it. Um, the galleries here largely have been um, thriving in the last three to five years. You'll read about the doom and gloom and the chronicle and whatnot, but for some of the galleries that have closed, others have opened. Um, so I, I do believe some of that is a is a, a result of the wealth, the tremendous amount of wealth that's here in the larger Bay Area. Um, but if I, if I think about what the essence that's most important to me as a gallerist, um, it's not the intellectual, you know, capacity here because we have that in spades and it's certainly not the, the, um, the market because, you know, still New York and London and even, uh, Beijing dominate. But for me, it's the, the artists and, um, and I think, it, for me, that is the biggest, um, area that we are deficient in, and and a gallerist cannot survive without artists, and it is the beginning and the end, and it's why I'm here. So if I think of the cultural health um, from a visual arts perspective, and it doesn't mean just a gallery, an artist who can, you know, showcase work, who sells objects, or whose work can be monetized. It's it could go everything from um, all of the collaborative work that I see going on in my industry. My artists collaborating with dancers and dancers and musicians. So it really extends into the arts. Um, in a greater way, and and that is where I feel that um, I've my personally had my artists leave the Bay Area because of the affordability issue. I've had them leave the area because they just can't sustain themselves, send their kids to school, they can't find studio spaces that are adequate. And if I, um, those are the that is the one thing uh, that that irks me the most. And the second thing would be criticism. Um, I wish we had more than one viable art critic in the Bay Area. because Sorry, um, sorry Charles. <laughs> I have nothing against Charles DeMarais. Um, I, but I do believe we need more voices. We need younger voices, and we need diverse voices. So uh, I really, um, I'm always scratching my head at how do we fund new ways and creative ways of, of criticism, because every time I read something that uh, a writer would provide to about one of my artists or a critic, it's like a gift. It's like an opening. It's a greater understanding. And it's something that I, I feel, um, for me, the best artwork, as I've said before, um, creates space to have very difficult and uh, discussions or create space to to invite new kinds of answers. And oftentimes critics and writers are a catalyst for that. And, and I feel that we don't have enough um, voices and venues in the Bay Area. And I would really love to, to see that change. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Sharon talk. 
<clears throat> and one of the things I was going to say is I think we have a lot of writers. We don't have a lot of platforms. Yeah. Hi. It's loud. Um, well, nice to be here tonight. Forgive my um, voice. I'm a little fighting a little cold here, but I'm thrilled to be talking with these wonderful colleagues on this topic. Um, my background is uh, exclusively in the nonprofit sector. Uh, and so my work has always been very much driven by mission and values. And at the heart of that has really been supporting artists directly and supporting um, new kinds of thinking, experimental work, work that might not have a place in the commercial world. And I do think in terms of um, DNA and values, the Bay Area is a really generative place for work that doesn't always fit within a box. I think the artists that we work with here and that um, choose to make the Bay Area their home are really uh, typically trying to push the boundary in some way around their work, their discipline. I think a lot of that is informed because we have a very um, strong academic side of the of the arts ecosystem here. There are uh, at least eight MFA programs in the Bay Area, which is a whole lot, actually, for a fairly small region. The flip side of having all of those incredible academic opportunities is that we are graduating a whole lot of young artists and have very, very few opportunities for them. Uh, and typically, they're coming out of those schools with an obscene amount of debt. So in some ways, part of the challenge for the arts community is a socioeconomic one. And to echo what Wendy says, you know, the cost of living here, as we all know, is absurd. Um, artists can't work without space. Their work requires space, actually. And so if they can't find a studio or a place to work, they, by default, can't really make their work. Um, so it's a challenged, uh, it's a challenged ecosystem. But it's also a really generative and fertile one. So it's it's complicated. I don't think I could say I was trying to diagnose the patient earlier and I was like, I, I don't know, C plus? Like I that's not the way you diagnose a patient. But you know, there's there's really <laughs> there's some really fabulous, interesting things going on here and a lot of sources of support. Um I think the Bay Area is also a very collaborative place. And so between the gallery community, the nonprofit community, the academic community, there are a lot of um it's a strong network where people know each other. People call me all the time and are interested in partnering or pitching ideas or finding ways to work together. So at least for me, it's um, it's a manageable ecosystem, whereas New York or L.A. or Beijing, I, I haven't been in New York in a long time in a professional context, but I remember it feeling much harder to get things done because it's such a vast arts community. So, you know, I think our size here is part of our challenge and also part of the um, the upside. I believe we're calling it now challenge tunities. Um, I'm really, really going to coin that word this evening. Um, but yeah, yeah. Um, so that's just a little bit on it. But um, I'm also personally, because I, I run a nonprofit organization, I think a lot about the health and the wellness of the arts professionals. So both the writers, but thank, also the... Thank you um, for that. I'm glad you think about us. I, I do. I, I try. And uh, really thinking about um, the cost of living for them and thinking about professional development opportunities, compensation. There's a very significant uh, leadership dearth here now. A lot of the bigger nonprofits and even the smaller ones, um, turnover is very, very high because people can't afford to pay their employees very well. And those talented administrators are actually leaving the arts field. So it's something we're actually seeing as part of the challenge that, um, at least on the nonprofit side, has really uh, plagued us because we can't really, um, we can't keep the talent so it applies to the artists and to the arts professionals as well. Uh, maybe I'll leave it there. Yeah. Well, I'm going to um, jump in and then um, I, I just I'm going to just throw out my evaluation of the cultural health. Um, if if one is fit, very fit and healthy, and ten is dead, <laughs> terminal. Um, I would say we're in about four, and I've seen us in about nine in the late 90s. And it, and um, I feel that right now is a really critical time in San Francisco. In fact, you know, I've been working in the Bay Area over the last 20 years, and um, I've been watching from that perspective what's going on. But my colleagues here in both their capacities are really transformative in their roles and in their positions uh, in the art world in San Francisco. And I was wondering if first you, Wendy, and, and then uh, Sharon can talk about this, um, this kind of flexibility, how you've transformed in a very radical way the, the gallery model. And Wendy is just at the 
leading edge, I would say the bleeding edge, too, of this transformation. So could you tell us about it? Um, yes, thanks. I, so about a year and change ago, I wrote, um, a published in an art uh, zine called Artsy. I call it my mini manifesto, but it was really um, a, an opening of here's everything that I see in the gallery world. I was very forthcoming about the challenges of being a gallerist and especially as a gallerist in San Francisco, and how I had this beautiful big space, 6,000 square foot space um, near SF MoMA, arguably one of the nicest gallery spaces in the Bay Area. Um, and I would produce these incredible exhibitions that are 10 to 12 a year. And I would get about the same amount of people coming and usually the similar faces. And there was this point in time when I just stopped and said, this can't be it. I mean, this is not the end-all, be-all for me. I, 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 I felt that there had to be more to it. And the, with the proliferation of art fairs in my industry, I mean, at any given point in time, right now everybody's in New York for the Omri show. They, it's just like this whole jet, you know, they all just travel around the globe from one art fair to another. And it felt like um, the idea of mounting wonderful exhibitions and having people actually come was losing its... Um, pizzazz and pull, and that could be because of technological changes, economic changes. People would rather go hiking on a Saturday, for example, in the Bay Area than they would come to a gallery. So I, I changed my model, and I do what's called um, off-site exhibitions. Basically, I've slowed down what I do, um, trying uh, to, at this increasingly fast, I slowed down parts of what I do. I, I, um, I, instead of mounting 10 to 12 exhibitions in my gallery a year, I, um, I have a headquarters in San Francisco's Hayes Valley, and I stage more like three to four or five, depending on um, the pace and the rhythm of my artists in their studios. And I mount and present these exhibitions in the markets that I find most interesting. So uh, that fit with the work. In fact, right now we have a show up in the mission for a Brooklyn-based artist that I've been representing for a while. It's her first show on the West Coast. We are utilizing underutilized real estate because uh, whether it's the Amazon effect or whatever, uh, there are um, uh, there's a plethora of empty spaces that are causing you know public safety and public health issues. So I typically go into spaces that are vacant and empty, and 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 I hate to use the word pop up, but I can't get away without saying but and pop up with my artists, my team, and we we occupy these spaces for around six weeks and and. What I've been able to do is connect with all these new people in these communities, whether I'm out in Dogpatch like I was earlier in September or in little Haiti in Miami with one of my Bay Area artists who had never had a show on the East Coast and that neighborhood in little Haiti really spoke to the socio-political diversity in that body of work, or the show that I'm working on this spring is um, in collaboration with Museum of Modern Art in New York for one of my artists. Um, I'm doing a big show in New York. So I'm able to pop up in these markets, and I have met so many people, store owners, kids, um, uh, different types of collectors by just coming to communities instead of waiting for them to come to me. Uh, so it's more what I would say experiential and I'm trying to create something rare and different and I'm asking a lot of my audience to pay attention to where I go next and why I go there. Um, but I'm really uh, the first person to do this and then I wrote an article a year later and talked about the, what it's like a year after, um, you know, me doing this and even more i even published my sales results in the in the art world nobody that, that shares was anything audacious. So, that was so really like, transparent. here's 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 how it's working and and i i'm exhausted i travel all the time but i mean i have met more people um in the last year than i did probably the seven or eight years prior and connected with new audiences and my artists when i when i had this crazy idea I first went to my artists and I sat down one at a time with each one and each of my artists had twinkles in their eyes. And I knew, cause they're all, most great artists are on the edge. They're out there on the edge. We're just catching up to them. That's my experience. And so when I, when I, um, 
pitched this idea to my artists, every single one of them was uh, not only on board, they were like, yes, you mean, you mean I could, I could have a show in London? I'm like, what? Well, sure. You know, uh, what about, what about Cape Town? I'm like, hang on. Like, I don't, but, but we were just like, it depends, you know, where, where we think it, where we think it is best suited. So I've, I've learned a lot about real estate and negotiations, but I also know that like the, the city of Manhattan and New York is already five steps ahead of me. They have a one page contract that I can go in and sign in a moment's notice. I've already talked to the Department of Planning in San Francisco. They work with me on whatever I want to do. They don't even ask me to get permits um, because what I'm trying to do is also benefit these neighborhoods where I go um, and, and occupy. And so it's been great. Um, yeah, yeah, so it's a little crazy, but but also great. It's a, a great new model. <laughs> yeah, it's very, it's it's very inspiring, and Wendy is very inspiring since you know so many of the there was statistics that came out, and I'm affiliated with a not for profit in San Francisco, the lab that opened in 1984, and they're losing the Redstone Building, which is ironically the original labor temple for San Francisco. And um, we're trying to put together a coalition of not-for-profits who are primarily itinerant since uh, more than 82% of San Francisco's small arts organizations are either itinerant already or at risk of displacement. And since 2010, rents in San Francisco have increased 79%. So you can imagine what that's like for artists who are not even, most artists who even work for SF MoMA or have an exhibition at SF MoMA are not being paid wages that um, actually are, you know, sort of what we imagine wages to be for labor. So you can imagine how difficult it would be for the San Francisco artist force. So what Wendy's doing is certainly, an, you know, adding to the ecosystem in positive, new, uh, adaptive ways. And I wondered what kind of conversations you're having with your board, your staff, and with artists at the Headlands that are transforming, responding to the times. Yeah, um, well, very different models. Um, Headlands has been around for 37 years and is based in the national park. So we are actually a unique model of a partnership of a nonprofit organization with the federal government. And I swear I never thought I would be in partnership with the federal government. I do not work for them. I work with them. With them. And um, we have nine historic buildings. Do they know about your social disobedience? I think they kind of like it, actually. So what's interesting for us is we are in a long-range relationship with the Park Service, and part of part of our value to them is that we provide a mission, and we also rehabilitate and take care of these aging but beautiful old buildings. So what, we're unique uh, in the local arts community because unlike many organizations who don't have enough space or can't figure out their space or are losing their space, we have a lot of space. <laughs> space is one thing we have. And for artists to be able to be invited to a place like the Headlands and be given keys and 24-7 access and no strings attached and to be told... And good food. And wonderful food. Yeah. Uh, to be able to be given that kind of level of investment and trust without any expectation is actually um, unparalleled. There really aren't very many models that function that way. So at the board level and at the committee's level, and we have some of our folks here tonight... We, we've really done a lot of soul searching about our, our values and been very, very committed to doubling down, in fact, on investing directly in artists. And so we offer stipends, we fly people out, we give them the fabulous meals, we house them, they get the studio space. It's a really holistic fellowship model that we support and they do not have to produce anything for us in return. And so the idea of investing in people's potentiality we've actually found to be incredibly powerful in a time in the world that is so um, outcome-oriented and so sort of product-oriented. We've really been able to focus on process and in research and in experimentation and to provide space for people to do their best work without it being about what we want from them. So we, we've done just a lot of... Um, you know, we we do a lot of business models and math, and we're always trying to figure out how to raise the money we need to raise. It's not a small operation to take care of. But at the end of it all, we're very much thinking about how do we stay artist-centered and how do we continue to move the needle on supporting the next generation of artists? Uh, so we're fully multidisciplinary. Anyone who works in any media can come to the Headlands, and um, we're international. So people come from around the globe, but also they can be local. 
And so we, we've sort of honed in on this model that we think is really, really successful. And so we're interested in actually maintaining the thing that works really, really well and um, not feeling like we have to change because the outside world is changing around us. It's great. I mean, the Headlands, if you haven't been out to the Headlands, is just a magical experience on all levels. And there are all kinds of public days, Sundays, where you can go out and go into artist studios. And you've created a public space now, which is called the Commons. Commons. Speaking of Common. Speaking of Common and Commonwealth. And I was thinking also, when I look out in the audience tonight, I could say, well, this is a great indication of cultural health, all of you coming and assembling together. Um, These are really important moments, the assembling, uh, whether it's to go to a gallery opening for Wendy or to show up to, to artist talks or visit artist studios through your, the museum network. These are ways to really assemble and support, uh, the cultural workers, whether they're artists or curators or gallerists or, or not for profits. And, um, so I'm all about assembling, which is another UC Berkeley arts and design terminology, Massimo. <laughs> we like to assemble and we like to talk about the value and the, the health uh, the cultural health that comes through from assembling. And you've actually created a space for that. And so have you in your, in your itinerants. So moving along, um, so that we can get to Q and A's, um, I wondered, we've talked a little bit about the challenges that we see, and obviously the real estate challenge is one of the the largest challenges. Now, Manhattan, we always look to Manhattan as this vibrant, artistic um, sort of utopia, but in fact, if anybody has seen the most recent Whitney Biennial curatorial statement, which is coming out, it's basically mostly younger artists that have been selected this year, and it's all about this precarity of the artistic practice as labor. And um, so although San Francisco is really suffering right now in terms of this mass exodus of artists and artist spaces and, um, as you said, artist professionals, this is happening in many of the major cities in this country as well. And and, um, we can't talk about Europe, it's a different model, but we can talk about that later. So with that in mind, with what we've already said, it's very hard to do our work, all of our work, without artists, because we all work with artists. That's our primary sort of raison d'etre. Uh, and just like Wendy, I go off to other cities to work, because not I mean, that's where I find work <laughs> as an independent curator now. I don't I'm not affiliated with an institution in San Francisco at this point, which is exciting. Um, but also because there are not there are not a lot of opportunities here for my artists. So I'll go and curate a show in Scottsdale or in Manhattan as I did last year. So with that in mind, with this idea that we can't even support our artists, that curators can't support their artists, that galleries are having a hard time supporting their artists, um, I was wondering if I, and I asked you both to think about your wish list for what you see as the dreams for a, a sort of healthier and more generative San Francisco Bay Area kind of utopian blueprint, how you could imagine that and some practical information for the folks in the audience. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. Um, well, I've got a list. I've got a wish list. Um, the first, as, as you pointed uh, to, was uh, this idea of assembly or engagement. I really, I, I'm, I'm, um, I am guilty of this myself. We are all so busy and hectic, and there's so many things going on. And um, I know how easy it is to not participate in things, but I will say, part of an engaged ecosystem is that participation and that ecos that um, that exchange that sort of community spirit. So um, there's a lot of stats about arts participation over the last few years. Fewer people are going to things. More people are engaging with things online. Um, there's fascinating arts things going on online, so I understand that. 
but for me, and maybe I'm old school in this way, there's, there's nothing like being in a space with the actual work and really being able to experience it in real time. Um, and it's a bit of a cycle. If people don't go to things, then maybe there's not the right ticket sales or income, or maybe a funder who's collecting stats and isn't seeing the kind of attendance they're looking for might not renew the grant. So there's kind of a ripple effect of audiences not showing up that impacts the ability of artists to actually make work. Um, so participation is one thing for me, and maybe I'll take it a step further and pitch membership and philanthropy. Um, very important to support your local organizations, whatever they are. At this point, I'm sort of like, support whatever you're into, but just support something. I think it's really, really important that people get behind things. And the other thing that I'm personally really interested in is um, more of a civic participation uh, for the arts. Um, artists are now being tapped for all kinds of interesting roles in different cities and uh, different countries where there's sort of artists in residence models in different government agencies and different policy making agencies and different research institutions. And for me, the idea that artists could be embedded in these other decision-making bodies is really a way to validate and value the perspective of artists and elevate their role in society. So it's not just that artists make work that lives over there or that you can see on that wall, but artists can actually help influence the decision-making of the societies we live in. Um, so those were my big ones. Um, the other thing, I'll just make one last pitch, um, coming from San Francisco where I worked before Marin, there is, um, a program called grants for the arts, which is very common in many big cities where, uh, there is a funding model where, uh, the, the government actually helps fund nonprofit and arts participation. So in grant, in grants for the, the arts model, from it's ta taxes, it's taxes um, from hotel Hotel, hotel tax. taxes and tourism and a percentage of it goes back to um, arts organizations and it's it's competitive grant making but it's a way for money that's flowing through the economy to actually result back in feeding the arts ecosystem in Marin there's actually nothing like that and so I know that some folks in the room are doing a little bit of work to really think about how to really elevate the value of the arts and artists in Marin County um, but right now as a nonprofit in Marin there are no sources of support and um it's a problem uh, i mean but the public aspect is i i wanted to mention that well both all three of us have actually worked in with public art in different iterations in different moments but most recently you've been working with public art and how do you see that as well um i was uh involved i was the art consultant for salesforce tower and um, so that big Jim Campbell you see in the sky um, was there, whether you like it or, or not. <laughs> that, th that was a project that I worked on for a long time. I'm actually, um, my team and I are rolling out a new project that I'm really proud of, um, that we've a cur a curated project. I think we're so excited about it. We're going to write a book on it um, and that for um, Related, which is a big developer. And this um, client brought us on. Uh, they don't have to. Uh, provide art for the public, but they did it because they wanted to. So um, they gave us a wonderful budget and uh, carte blanche and to build like a critically um, important collection for them that could be shared with their residents and with the public. And so that will be unveiled in May. And in and, and doing that, um, and this is going to go to my wish list, I was really careful to... Um, I mean, I have a wonderful team. It makes it look like I do a lot of things, but actually they do most everything and I just kind of show up to things like this. And, um, but, but we, we, uh, we put together a list of artists that is very global in nature. Um, my program from day one has always been internationally centered, which is why a place like the Headlands has been essential to my very existence as a gallerist. Um, um, but, but it's very international, it's very forward thinking, and it also includes a strong component of local artists where I was able to work, um, with, you know, maybe one or two artists from my program, but I went to some of my colleagues that I respect in the Bay Area, um, like Jessica Silverman and Claudia Eltman Siegel and, uh, um, and, um, 
uh, several other galleries, Rena Branston, and bought artwork from them. And that made me feel so good. Like, and we talk about buying local food. We talk about, you know, supporting. But why, why don't we support our own local artists? The, the myth, and I would say it's not a myth. The fact is that many artists in the Bay Area have to go and make it in places like New York before they're ever really valued here. And by the time they're valued here, they've left. And the institutions here are always looking for what's, you know, the grass is greener. Um, and, and it takes a while. And I think finally, because I've been working closely with SF MoMA and the de Young with some new curatorial blood, they're finally starting to pay attention to what local institutions are doing in a bigger way and local, local gallerists. So, um, y- you know, when I see a local institution or collector, buying an artist's work from the gallery in London because they can, that same artist that I represent, I have a problem with that, you know, when they could just get it from, and, and what I'm able to do and reinvest in my local artists, um, because that's what I do. I reinvest it back in just like every one of my colleagues in the Bay area. I was the president of the board of the San Francisco art dealers association for almost three years. I know very well how these businesses work and, and what they're thinking about and and I really just feel like it's almost this in a in a time when we're all trying to struggle with, you know, climate change and political chaos around the world, it really does feel good to go out and support a local artist, whether you're just showing up or whether you're acquiring something, whether it's something you can, you know, um have in your dining room and, and it could be a conversation starter. Um and I sound like a salesperson in saying this, but it, it means so much. Every time, at the end of the day, I'm a matchmaker, and every time <laughs> I connect an artwork with a client and I, my artist gets to meet that collector, I mean, it's like that's what keeps me going at the end of the day. It's, it's a very exciting thing, and, and I've never seen um, a supporter of an artist regret it. And so it is about showing up, for sure. I mean... It makes a big difference, but it's also about, you know, I, I have two kids. I know we all have kids at this table. They are, they, they're locate, they're being educated here in Mill Valley. And, um, I think it's also about taking your kids to see things because I, I, I don't think I saw art until I was 20 talking about really? cultural health. <laughs> so like I, I, I grew up in Ohio in a place that was completely devoid of culture unless you count sports, which is some cultural importance. But I, I feel like it's really important to, to have your children see things. And so whether you decide to take them on a hike on Sunday, maybe on uh, Saturday or Sunday afternoon, you take them to the museum or to a gallery. Galleries are also free, by the way. They cost nothing. So I can't, I can't under, I can't understate that enough because I do think it helps, um, it helps us all. I mean, I've done a lot of work with the Cleveland Clinic, mm-hmm. and um, they are the leading, um, the pioneers when it comes to, you know, art and healing and health. And um, and I also am a big believer in that. Uh, so whether you're talking about art and education, art and healing, and at the end of the day, I think it's all very much in the positive, I think, for the experiencing of art and supporting art. Which is the same writing about artists or or lecturing about artists or speaking about artists and, and working with them, which is what I do in my career and in my life it it's the same sort of another another way to sort of enhance the health of this artistic ecosystem uh, as well as attending and becoming members a member of the Headlands, for example. So on that note, we've talked about a lot of things very briskly and very quickly, and we have a lot more to talk about, but I'd like to open it up to the audience because we have a lot of, you know, healthy cultural people in the audience. So I'd love to hear from you. Oh, my. I'm a Mill Valley artist. I have my studio over at the Mill Valley Lumber Yard. Great. And um, having been an artist since God was a boy, I have a couple of issues I would love for you to address. Mm-hmm. Go for it. One of which is, how do you find your artists? Number two, it feels like in this climate, you have to be transgender, black, um, a hermaphrodite, Oops. or Oops. crippled to be noticed. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Okay. Number, you can't be a middle-aged white woman 
living in Mill Valley. That just doesn't exist. And I I may be wrong, and I hope you can prove me wrong. Mm -hmm. Second, my latest series uh, involves art history, and I've found that most people that have been to my shows have not taken art history. And we live in a very wealthy community where people will look at an iconic old master painting and say, you know what? That looks kind of familiar. Okay, so that involves education. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm all over the map. And the other thing is, how do we address these issues? Thank you. Well, um, I represent 16 artists and artist estates, meaning these artists are no longer alive. And I look at, I don't know, thousands of artists a year, and I don't have a formula for how I select my artists. Um, I think I'm always a little bit ahead of the curve. <laughs> um, that's probably not the best business move, but I mean, I've been representing artists, um, uh, international artists, um, artists of color, women artists, Latino artists before it was ever trendy. And, and, you know, part of your comment that I hear, um, it is, um, there is definitely a trend, um, but there's always been a trend. I mean, there was a trend in contemporary Chinese. There was a trend in contemporary Indian artists. It's great, actually, to be a female artist today. I mean, it is it is helpful. Um, it's very hard. Um, there are not enough galleries uh, to uh, support artists. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, I guess it's subjective for me. I'm, I'm trying to think of every one of my artists, in my opinion, is brilliant. I mean, and I think they're carving out um, a space that I haven't seen before, reinventing a narrative, uh, pushing a new boundary or into a new medium. I, I, you know, and I think that's evidenced by the 180 museum shows that I've been involved in with my artists over the last, I don't know, three and a half years and, and going, including what's happening in the year ahead. But um, it's really hard to be an artist. I, I don't. I could not be an artist. Uh, I can't even draw. My kids think it's funny, but um, and I and I try to encourage artists that don't have representation that if you believe in it, you have to stick to it. You have to be as pure and authentic as possible, because that authenticity and and is is really at the end of the day what counts. And um, I wish I had. I wish there were more gallerists and everybody lived with uh, original artworks and um, not, you know, posters and whatever else, but, but it's just not the case. So as the trained art historian on the panel here, um, Wendy has an MBA in African-American studies over here, uh, and I studied art history as well as um, aesthetics and philosophy the way that I would respond to your questions, because like I can't take them on directly, but um, take them from a the, sort of diagonally, um, the artists that I work with, whether they are mostly they're living, they're contemporary artists. Um, I also often rehistoricize artists that have been forgotten or neglected. So those are the two areas that I'm the most prolific in. Um, I'm mostly interested in artists who are responding to the political uh, climate of the day, who are contemporary, who are, who are teaching us something new, some, a way to think about our world today, whether it's through the optic of their own relationship to art history or aesthetics or their own medium, whether it's video or painting or installation, what's critical in how I cathec uh, to an artist to work with, and I work with a lot of artists. I'm currently working with like six artists, juggling them. They're calling me all the time, as you know what it's like. Um, those are the artists that resonate for me, the artists that I can work with and write about and, and exhibit. You can answer the question, how do you find your artist? I did. I, I did. I, I, I'm, I look a lot. Research. I search. Um, the most recent artist was introduced to me by a curator. Um, I you come to Headlands. Yeah, yeah, right. My director of the gal. Yeah, the, I look I've, at a lot. The answer is you look artists. at a lot of art. We look go. At a we lot of art. we spend most of our time looking at art and going to studios and going to exhibitions and traveling and going to biennials and art fairs. So basically, we are looking all the time. I mean, I went to a studio in Inverness. I don't know this is an artist that I'll work with for various reasons, but he's brilliant. And this, I mean, so there are so many great artists. I just can't represent them all. It's not 
prudent for me. Thank you so much. And Wendy, I really appreciate how you are really modifying and changing your business model. And I appreciate your comments about kids. I think we're, we're putting a lot of faith and hope, hope in our next generation. And that's my question is that, um, I'm also a mom of two. I've been in the art world. My blood boils every time I go by the museum of ice cream and see Uh. just like lines and lines and color factory. And then you get through a bowling ball through SF MoMA gallery. And part of me is like, we're not meeting where the next generation is like, not everything has to be an event and cool, but that is where, you know, that's why people are in lines for Kusama's rain room and et cetera. But where do you feel like, I love that you say, take your kids to the gallery, but Mike, I need a lot of, I have tools cause I'm an art historian and I work in the art, but the average person walks into a gallery, doesn't feel welcome, has no tools. Doesn't, I mean, I, I applaud my friend Lucy Charkin here, who is creating a whole Instagram around treasure hunts and how to engage with museums. But how can you address like sort of the, yeah, the inaccessibility to art and um, how are we going to engage that next generation and meet them where they are to engage them into spending an hour in a gallery and not at the Museum of Ice Cream? Yeah, how are you going to do that, Wendy? <laughs> I'm going to no, go I'm on Lucy's app. Dust. Magic fairy dust. I, I, well, I'm a Midwesterner, so if you ever walk into my gallery and yeah, one of my staff and I, I am, I'm the nice gallerist, uh, maybe, uh, I do say hi to everybody because there was a time when I first started to collect art. I was a bit of a, a little bit of a collector before I got into the business. And I was on a tour with SF MoMA at the Armory Fair about, I don't know how many years ago. And Jana Bishop was leading us around and she was with, we were with the Fishers and he's no longer alive. So I can say this. And he would just walk around and point at things. And I figured out pretty quickly that meant he was buying things. (laughs) And I could have thrown a wad of cash in the air and nobody would have said hi to me. I was trying to buy, I won't pick on this gallerist because they're still around, but I was trying to buy a a drawing from a gallery in, in New York and they just wouldn't give me the time of the day. And I vowed to myself from that point forward, I will be nice to everyone. And and I remember one of my first clients that this worked with, he was in a hoodie. He looked like he was on a first date and we just closed the door and I'm like, okay, come on in. And he was like employee number four at Google. And I ended up forming still to this day, he's on the board of one of our local museums and ended up forming a really great relationship with him. So you know what? In today's day and age, I think you have to say hi to everybody, but this museum of ice cream problem, Sharon and I were talking yeah, about earlier. All upset about that. I, I mean, but, but, you know, a lot of artists are interdisciplinary these days. And when I take my kids to shows and we have this little game, we're like, okay, what was your favorite thing you saw at the Whitney or at the SF MoMA? And what was the, the least favorite thing and why? And it's interesting what they like. Um, but I do find with a lot of the interdisciplinary artists these days, my kids are drawn to the video. They will stay in the video rooms forever. So, and that happens to be kind of nice for museums because they're relatively inexpensive to install and transport. So, so maybe that's one thing that I see that's nice, um, new media. I would, I would say that I'm not so worried about my, my son isn't college. And I'm not so worried about their generation because they are all artists in a certain way with their iPhones and, and their fashion. I mean, there is another level. I mean, we were talking about, we have to, the question is what, how, what do you think art is? I mean, is it an, an experience at the headlands? Is it music? Is it an installation? Is it video? Is it a painting to put on the wall? Is it a, a project that, you know, a, a, it's a, is it a film? Is it a Instagram account? You're talking about Instagram accounts. I'm not so worried. I'm less concerned about this next generation. I think they're actually much more um, visually literary than we are. I'm more concerned about my generation, this middle-aged generation that's not support, that has the resources and has the tools that you're talking about, the education and the resources, and who are not giving back to the to the cultural health of our, our, our city and to our museums and our smaller not-for-profit spaces. That's what I'm worried about, and, and because we have the potential to do so much. 
And the kids, it's, maybe we've put too much on them, but I'm not worried. They're very visually literate, and they're very interested in contemporary art. I mean, they are one of the biggest, the 18-year-olds, one of the biggest audiences right now. They're, they're doing a lot of research about this. But that you're, my kids are older than yours. But just to, to say that I think that there's a visual literacy that's very interesting and palpable. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm torn on this one because I, I don't worry about our kids, but I do worry about a lot of other people's kids who don't have access to the art world and don't feel comfortable in it and um, can't afford maybe a $30 ticket to get into the big museum downtown. So I was actually just in Cleveland where the museums are free. Blew my mind. The most amazing museums are free. Mm -hmm. And of course it was because there were very philanthropic families there who believe that the art should be for everyone. And there are families walking around and their kids running through the galleries. So I really... I worry about how the art world is seen as something that lives over here and the fact that the arts at large are not more integrated into day-to-day life and that it's not seen as acceptable. I now have a kid. I'm still absorbing that in my life, but um, I will take him with me to go do things and you know, maybe it's inappropriate. Maybe he talks loud. We went to an art thing. I won't tell you where we were. And he was talking and someone looked at me and was like, shh. And I looked at her and I was like, I'm trying to teach my kid art. <laughs> you know, like it's okay that he's talking. So I think there are these very um, strict boundaries that are put on how art is supposed to be absorbed or taken in that actually need to be broken down in order for the arts to feel more integrated into people's day-to-day lives. Yeah, I mean, the Met now, you have to pay to get into the Met, but it used to be free. Um, SF MoMA students, Berkeley students can't afford to go to SF MoMA. The student ticket is absurd. Hi. Um, so I'm 18 and I'm an artist in the Bay Area. I'm growing up in the art world and I have the great opportunity to have a family that really immersed me in the arts and to go to a school that promotes me and that where I had like a show earlier this year. And but Sharon, so I wanted to tie into what you what you said about students who maybe can't afford the museum tickets. And I was wondering about any programs that you could shout out or ideas you had for broader programs that could help support kids in the Bay Area who are growing up, who are in marginalized communities, who can't afford to like get their stuff out there. And I was also wondering about ideas that you'll have for really keeping kids in the Bay Area and getting them involved in making art in their community and staying there. Because when, like, when I look at my future, like the Bay Area will always be my home, but I don't really want to stay here and make art for all and make art for like the rest of my life not that I won't come back but like I it's it's hard it feels like there's a really large divide between the world of like some student art where you can submit to a magazine and everyone will be like wow this kid did something great and then the world of like real art so <laughs> I was wondering if y'all could address that please mm-hmm. what's the name of the organization yeah go ahead. you answered them um, I'm, I'm trying to hustle yeah. my list of yeah organizations that I can rattle off. So to your first question, organizations who are trying to support uh, kids or youth who don't typically have access, you know, just off the top of my head in San Francisco, and you will know these already, but Root Division and First Exposures come straight to mind. Um, Southern Exposure used to have a great youth program. I believe it's in transition at the moment. Um, the Tenderloin uh, Museum actually collaborates with a handful of local service organizations specifically around using the arts. I will send you an email with many other suggestions when I'm not under fire up here. But there are there are several. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And in fact, I will say in terms of the grant-making world and the foundation world, love we young have people. seen almost all of the money for arts organizations moving toward supporting not only education but um, underserved, marginalized communities. So while some organizations take a hit for that, it's actually a really good shift in where the dollars are going to think about that next generation of uh, art makers. Go to art school (laughs) to answer fully. Or or go to alternative art school. Right. Or just go, go, go to go continue on with your education. Uh, That leads me right into my question because I have a question about the Commonwealth. So I'm from California and was educated in the arts here in California in the Bay Area And in my generation, the universities were full of artists who are very well known to us today, you know, from Wayne Thiebaud to uh, uh, Nathan Oliveira to Viola Fry. 
and uh, all of the all of the art schools and universities, these people were on the faculties, even the state colleges had some of these amazing artists, and they were a commonwealth. Mm-hmm. And we benefited from that commonwealth studying here. So I don't see that today, and partly because I don't think the universities support, you know, professors the way they used to as professionals. So everybody's an adjunct or an assistant. But I may be wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong about the Commonwealth in the education field. But what what are the positives that are replacing that today? What do you see? Because I know there are other things that we don't necessarily see. They're not as obvious as they were back in the you know, 60s, 70s, 80s. I, I, I would agree with you. Um, I think people are operating. I, I don't see that kind of cohesive talent in, pulled in any of our universities. Um, there are certainly some great artists that still live and work in the Bay Area. Um, I think I could probably name them all, which isn't, which is kind of sad. Um, but I do, one of the things I see that's different is so much more collaboration. In my mind, collaboration is the way of the future. I see artists supporting one another. I'll, you know, take an artist who I still call him one of our own, uh, Trevor Paglin. And he splits his time between the Bay Area and Berlin or whatever. But he is the most um, giving and collaborative of spirits and working with artists all over, whether he's here in the Bay Area supporting institutions and ideas and all kinds of ways, musicians. So, so I, I see that happening more and more and this almost global collaborative spirit than I do, um, in this sort of salon style critical, you know, um, excitement. I wish we had that. I would, I long for that, but well, I, I don't see it as much. I would, um, sort of disagree with Wendy a little bit here in the sense that we do have very fine faculty at our institutions and we have big named faculty artists educating our next generation. Um, so that does exist. What does, what doesn't exist, and I agree with Wendy on this, is just the model that, I mean, we, we have an extraordinary countercultural history here as an artistic history here, as you said. We don't live, I mean, the question of counterculture is what culture does counterculture counter? And if you don't have any culture, you don't have a counterculture. So um, I would say that we have some extraordinary, Mills College has a really cohesive, really powerful faculty of women artists. Uh, CCA, where I teach um, the curatorial uh practice program brings in international curators and we have a lot of interaction there but it's i would say it's more the times the 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 idea of the commonwealth and that's why i began with that and the the notion of health it's it's we're just operating in a different time now so as contemporary subjects and those of us who work in contemporary art we have to sort of develop these new models and these new ways of of bringing again assembling people how do we assemble people together and allow for this kind of communication to happen um so as residents of marin uh it isn't beyond me that all of the talk here is a lot about san francisco i know a lot's happening in the east bay and i wonder what you think we could do here in Marin to grow the the health of art in Marin. And specifically to you, Wendy, it's striking to me that when you drive down 4th Street in San Rafael or driving through our town of San Anselmo, there's a lot of empty space. There's a lot of four lease signs. And so I'd love to hear any of the tips or stumbling blocks that you've overcome in sort of looking at alternative spaces or pop-ups um, to find new life for art in the community? I um, drive around Mill Valley, I can say, and uh, I see all these projects that I want to do. I can't, I mean, I have about five ideas in my head that I'm trying not to um, articulate just because I don't have time. (laughs) But I do think um, for me, there is uh, a great opportunity for more public art in um, Marin. 
I think um, from a public policy perspective, and we haven't really touched on that yet, I think public policy, and that's why uh, politics and who we elect is so essential in the world today, like those 1% or 2% for the art requirements are very important and how we uh, realize those in our communities. I would love to see... Um, in addition to the wonderful landscape we live in here, um, some very tasteful and incredible public art that was um, awarded to local artists. Um, that would make me really happy. That would be my number That's one thing. That's a wish thing. list. Yeah. Um, so, and in terms of spaces, uh, yeah, I see those too. And, you know, I'm excited. I see an empty space and I see Julie Zener in there lately. And I was like, thank yeah, God she yeah. took that space. Because yeah. I'm like, so I walk around the corner and I see these spaces and I'm like, oh, that looks like it. Like, could I do a show in Mill Valley? What would that look like? But um, I do think it's a great opportunity for artists even to power themselves, pull a little bit of resources together, and, and put your own show on. I mean, the very first show I ever did, before I decided to be in the gallery world, I moved over from tech. I just popped up in a, in a studio, and at the time I used my Palm Pilot, that's how old I am, and, um, <laughs> and invited a bunch of friends in and ended up selling artwork of my friend's artwork. And... I had no idea what I was doing, and I was like, "This is fun," uh, and I felt very, you know, excited by it. And it was, it wasn't something that was a fancy gallery; it was a underutilized space. And so, I think anybody can do that. And and I think to to dovetail on that, and I want sorry, I want to hear from Sharon, but uh, we we now have the Marin Mocha. Um, it once was that Marin was the bedroom community for San Francisco, and so most people went to get their culture in San Francisco. And, and now it's harder and harder to get to the city, as we all know. And as I started the talk with the fact that I could walk here, I'm starting to get really excited about opening a gallery with your husband, Massimo. <laughs> We're going to open a gallery, everybody. Um, but no, there, I, I think there, the demographics are changing. And, and I think that, the, the, that we might be seeing more of this in Marin actually just naturally happening. That's going to yeah, no, I would just say similarly, we've seen that artists can't afford to live in San Francisco. So they've moved to the East Bay, but a lot have moved to Marin. And so there is a vitality going on here that we're seeing. And it's not an uncommon model where a bunch of artists will go in on a storefront together, studios in the back, little project space in the front, done and done. You know, there, there actually is a lot of opportunity for that here, I think. We were talking about artist-run spaces. I personally love artist-run spaces. It's one of my favorite things that artists are oftentimes the best curators of other artwork. And, and, um, I think we just don't have enough of those now, but it would be great to have them. Hi, thank you so much for all of your contributions. I just wondered if any of you have heard about something. Um, you know, a lot of people are losing their places to live in Marin and in San Francisco. So where are they going? So uh, this happened to me, and what I was looking for was I lived in New York for a long time, and there was West Beth, or there was an artist community where artists lived together, which is something like the residency only actually living together and pooling their resources and having their own exhibits and all of that. So is there anything like that going on in the Bay Area? Well, there have been models in the past, and again, this is a phenomenon to, to respond to. You know, this goes back to the statistics that I was citing. I mean, there's a, there was the farm, the collective. I worked, I lived at the farm in San Francisco, and that had, you could live and work there as an artist. Uh, that does not exist anymore. Um, there are several collectives. I work with some artists in, in, in downtown Oakland, and they've created what Sharon was just talking about, their own collective, but they're young, they can sleep on the floor and they can carry their entire, you know, stuff on their back and they're willing to, they, this is their life. And so you will find a lot of these communities, the, the young emerging artists are living, you know, in spaces together and sort of co-opting and co-oping spaces. As for more established artists and spaces, um, there, this is a city a city issue and we have I mean I've sat with Matt Gonzalez and 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 various city people on many occasions talking about housing and studios and it's you know there are many many proposals that come up to San Francisco um, at, at the city level uh, this is something as activists we've been engaged with but we're not finding a lot of traction there's a San Francisco Art Foundation um, 
he's one of our Mill Valley community members is the head of this in San Francisco, and they're trying to develop this, these housing complexes. Um, there is Minnesota Street Project that opened, which the idea behind that was to help and give under market rates to artists and galleries that's been functioning but it's not a housing situation but there have been attempts but i would say that most of the really vibrant models have disappeared along with the artist spaces the not-for-profits and the artists unfortunately you will find i mean it, it is it, in oakland i was at a, an event recently uh, friends of uh, the colleagues of ours um trying to find a way to adapt an industrial building and give um under market rate for artists and living artists. I mean, you will find these efforts. Um, there, there just isn't the zeitgeist right now for that. I mean, it's definitely a moment, um, but you'll find it does exist. It's just not as visible as to you that it might not be as visible, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I work with a lot of developers. Um, sometimes they're private clients of mine and sometimes I'm doing their public art curation so I know, like, Treasure Island has tossed that idea around. They have, but they haven't done anything. I've yeah. been hearing about it for a while. It would be really lovely yeah. to see something more cohesive, live workspaces. I know that um, Lennar out at Hunter's Point and their new requirements, they're building uh, additional studios out there for a lot of the displaced artists in that part of the, the San Francisco area. Um, and I also know there are developers like I, I, one is called group I that's run by a woman. I just point that out because I think she's very, yes, yeah, she's great. Yeah. Um, and I think she's trying to consider ways to make, um, a, 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 a allocate a portion of that to be affordable specifically for artists and artist studios. I don't, I'm having lunch with her in a couple of weeks. I don't know how she's progressed in the last two years on that. Yeah, there um, are a lot of conversations. I don't know. I haven't seen that many of these projects realized yet, but we hope that's our hope. Of course, that's part of the wish list for cultural health. Well, I'm going to kind of wrap up tonight's conversation. It's been a, a great night, and I want to thank the three of you for coming and educating us. And I know you'll stick around. If you have, if you have more questions, I, I think you can come up and, and talk to our guests. Thank you so much for coming next month. We're going to have a conversation on uh, farming to save the earth on, on April 3rd. So I hope you can all come back next month. Th thank you all for coming. Thank you.